Hey there, good people on Crypto Land. I'm Matt Lysing, and this is my podcast, Decent People. Welcome back to the conversation. We've been taking a break in August, uh, but we're pulling episodes from the archives. And the one we have for you today is with Kanav Kariya. Kanav started at Jump Trading Group as an intern and helped build the early trading platform there um, for Jump's crypto efforts in 2016. If you don't know, Jump Trading uh, and Jump Crypto are one of the biggest players uh, in the space. Uh, they are a billion-dollar operation and trade uh, in all sorts of coins and in DeFi products. And we talked about Kano's upbringing in India, uh, the kind of Legos he liked to play with, and his early love of video games. So, hope you enjoy the episode, and we will have all new uh, episodes coming in September. So, make sure to stick around for that. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks a lot. Do you think we're going to be able to have this conversation and not mention three uh, certain letters or maybe two sets of three uh, letters? Yeah. Um, there's, there's, a, there's, a, yeah there's, there's a few sets of three letters that are non-negotiable within crypto these days. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, ass should be one of them. For <laughs> Add that to the list. Yeah. Well, hey, man, it's great to have you on the show. I really uh, appreciate it. And I've been looking forward to kind of learning um, more about your background and and how you came to uh, be heading Jump Crypto at at such a a ripe early age of 25. Um, And we're going to get into a lot of what you guys are doing there um, at Jump and and kind of the broader market, um, you know, kind of zeitgeist now. But but at first, I'd love to just kind of jump back and... and, uh, ask you know about your background and, and can you tell me uh where you i think you grew up in india is that correct yeah that's right matt uh, and thanks for having me on um the yeah i, I grew up in india in mumbai um and uh you know, I, I came to the the us uh, uh during my undergraduate college days to study computer engineering at uh, the university of illinois yeah i've been I've been in the country for a little over eight years now okay um do you come from a big family? You have a lot of brothers and sisters, or yeah, uh, I, I so I grew up in a joint family, um, which is uh, which is which is a Indian English term, I, I think, um, which which means that my my dad and his brother and their parents um, all live together under one roof. Okay, and so I grew up uh, in, a, in a pretty big household. You know, seven of us in the house. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm an only child, uh, but since my dad's brother was also around, um, his, my, my dad's brother's daughter was like a sister to me. And so yeah. I didn't really know the distinction until. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cousins, I guess. Um, been like, yeah, we just call that an extended family here in the U S. Um, so right. was there always a lot of commotion and stuff around the house? Yeah. Yeah. We had tons of guests. Um, you know, India's a pretty communal place. You always have aunts and uncles over and friends and. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a it's a good time. Yeah, and what was um, Mumbai like at that time when you were a kid? Yeah, uh, yeah, M- Mumbai has always been a really vibrant city. Um, you know, the um, it's it never sleeps. Uh, you know, there's there's tons going on. There's a lot of drive. There's lots of hustle. Um, it's uh, it, it, it's a city that has a lot of opportunity. It also has a lot of inequality. Um, you know, th- those are things that I didn't appreciate back then growing up, but, um, you know, I was very fortunate to have a very comfortable uh, upbringing in, in Mumbai, um, one of the suburban areas. And, and yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a hungry population. It's the big city where folks from across the country come to live their dreams. 
Um, and, and it shows in kind of the drive and the passion in the city. It kind of sounds like the New York City of India where never sleeps. So everybody's going there to kind of like make their mark on the world. Yeah, it's dirty. It's busy. <laughs> it's cosmopolitan. It's a yeah. melting pot. Um, yeah. It's, uh, it's all those things. What were you into as a kid? Did you like school or were you into sports or what was like, what was uh, kind of like at a, at eight years old or 10 years old? I was a quieter kid generally. Uh, I really liked math um, and, and I liked uh, video games like Legos. Um, and, you know, it was, uh, I loved reading books. That was, that, was, that was a lot of what I did. I never had trouble keeping myself entertained, even just by myself. Um, and so I spent a lot of time doing that kind of thing. When I really got into video games, I also spent some time trying to pirate stuff off the internet. Um, <laughs> yeah. Tried to uh, spend spend way too many hours playing games, um, much to the chagrin of those others around me. But um, yeah, you mentioned Legos. I remember when I was a kid, Legos were just blocks. Like you didn't have like the Millennium Falcon kit that you could buy. Did Did you have that, or is that am I a little older than you? I, I'm definitely a little older than you, but. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't think Legos were nearly as cool when I was a kid as they are now. Because I get them like my when my boys were a little bit younger. Some of the stuff you can buy now is just absolutely amazing. Yeah, they, they definitely weren't as cool. Yeah, some of the stuff <laughs> that they yeah. get today is just is just awesome. Yeah, yeah no, I, I remember I had this um, this battleship thing that you could build, and I just yeah. couldn't figure out how to build it. So my dad <laughs> and I built the whole thing together, and he, that that meant that he built the whole thing. But that was the fanciest <laughs> one I had. Uh, yeah. You could assemble this thing. It was pretty hard to build, but yeah, some of those booklets. There's like five of them, and they're each like 50 pages long. It's just like, Jesus. Speaking of your dad, what did he do? Yeah, uh, my dad. You know, I come from a pretty entrepreneurial family, um, and so my dad, my granddad, started this business um, exporting uh, automobile parts for light and light and heavy commercial vehicles. Um, and so my dad and my uncle, uh, you know, kind of ran that business when. Uh, when when their dad kind of had a very unfortunate early death, and so they 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 took a lot of responsibility very early on in their life, and yeah, they you know continued to run that business up until actually a couple months ago, which is when they finally decided to sunset it and enjoy enjoy a bit of a retired life. But oh, yeah. nice, nice, that's great. And then, like you mentioned, video games. What what kind of drew you into that? What game, or or was it like a, a system like Nintendo or something like that? Yeah, I got a Game Boy when I was like very young, and uh, I remember that the Game Boys weren't available in India, but I had uh, I had extended family in the U.S. that had flown in, and they had got me and my cousin, uh, and I played a Croc on the Game Boy, and I think I just was just hooked by it. And then we had a PlayStation right after, and we played like this uh, Disney Bugs Bunny game a bunch, and for, for some reason I think it just kept like. We probably had like a pirated version of this. We only played like the first two levels, but we played those first two levels over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> like for, for maybe a whole year. Thinking about Game Boy, the, the coolest thing about it was you could take it with you, you know? Like what kid didn't want to take video games with them like anywhere they went? Like that was, it was kind of a precursor to a cell phone, I guess. So I was doing some reading on you and, and I read someplace that you originally kind of thought you were headed towards the army. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I was... Uh, yeah, I was I was I was really into war movies, um, and I really liked uh, a lot of strategy games where you could take control of like armies and stuff. And um, yeah, I was told a story of like when I was younger of my granddad really wanted being wanting to be in the army as well, but he but he had uh, he didn't have like he didn't have really great vision, and so they and they didn't have 
Uh, and at that time in the army, they wouldn't let you join if you had, if you had to wear glasses. Okay. Um, and so you couldn't make it. Um, and then for some reason, that story struck with me and we used to watch a lot of movies. We're a very patriotic family as well. And so like Independence Day in India, we're doing marathons of all the, all the movies and I watched them all growing up. And so, yeah, that was, uh, that was, that was along the way. And I mean, at that point it was, it was not, I mean, Pakistan and India were kind of, you know, having some tension, right? At that point, it wasn't like just a sort of, I don't want to say like meaningless, but you know, like it could have been something real in the army at that point. Am I correct on that? By the time I grew up, there weren't any, um, any, any outright wars. There's always been a bit of a cold war between India and Pakistan. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's manifested in terrorism and all these different things over the years. Um, but Definitely my parents have had experiences of that. Um, and, you know, I think in the 70s, there was a war and that gives rise to some national tensions across the borders. Um, I, th I think relationships like amongst like the younger, younger generations are like fairly good at this point. There's obviously mm -hmm. still political tension, but the internet has enabled those cultures to cross chasms. And so you see a lot of cross-pollination of entertainment, music, YouTube, you know, things like that, where yeah. uh, people try to bridge those gaps and celebrate any, you know, the shared root of culture, at least. And were you into like Bollywood movies and stuff? Or were you getting a lot of American or Western culture? Or was there a mix of it? Yeah, I, 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 I was, was never big into Bollywood movies, actually. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we did watch some Western movies. Um, I, I, you know, we used to have, uh, used to watch a lot of classics. My uncle's a big, big movie guy. Um, mm -hmm. And so he's a, uh, He's always excited to, to watch something. And so we'd get Baskin Robbins and watch a movie. Um, <laughs> nice. It was a pretty you know, classic thing to do. So, you know, watch a lot of uh, American classics, international classics. Just before we move on, what's your favorite war movie? Just got to get that on the record. For some reason, Where Eagles Dare is jumping to mind. But, uh, Which one? Where Eagles Dare. It's, a, it's like a World War II movie, if I'm, if I'm remembering it correctly. Okay. Yeah. I haven't heard of that one. thought you were going to say Platoon or something. like. Uh apocalypse now yeah um as you got older and, and like teenage years did you like what was the where were you setting your sights like you were um said you're getting into computers and video games and pirating some stuff was like the bigger computer science kind of world open to you at that point or what, what were you thinking um you know in the years leading up to your decision to to come to the u.s for college yeah you know you know i, I definitely was in one of those businesses that's been writing code since uh, since i was 12 yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's, that it's, uh, you, there's dozens of those in the crypto space. There's this kid Gajesh in out in Goa who's 14 and he's been writing crypto like blockchain programs for two years now. Um, and there's, there's a lot of that, but no, no I, when I was 12, I was, enjo I was enjoying video games. I was very interested in computers. I didn't necessarily know I wanted to do computer science or computer engineering, but I came to the U S uh, on a vacation to go see Disneyland when I was 13. Um, and I toured a couple of college campuses here while I was here. And I was like, oh, man, these, these look awesome. And so I knew that I wanted to come to the States to, to get my education because just the infrastructure and the quality of the education seemed very appealing. Um, and I always knew I liked math a lot. I liked physics a lot. And I enjoyed computers. And um, that kind of arbitrarily led me down to the path of picking computer engineering as a thing that I would study in college. Okay. Yeah, you're speaking at kids that have been coding since they were like 10. I just did interviewed nick um johnson do you know him he's the guy that kind of did the ethereum naming service 
Oh, so, yeah. I, I, I mean, I know the ENS, but I, I didn't know the story behind the guy. Yeah. yeah. So he's the guy that kind of got that through consensus and uh, spearheaded that project. And uh, doing some research on him, and I found a, a CNN article when he was 10 years old, and it was a couple of years before the Y2K bug, and he had coded um, a way to make sure that computers didn't, like, you know, crash after Y2K. <laughs> he's like 10 and so <laughs> I, I, right. you're right man there's like in crypto you, you'll run across those people like every other every other person pretty much um yeah it's like all the all the all the really smart kids that have access to the internet but no means to get a credit card and they want to do cool stuff on the internet that can potentially interact with like money like things yeah and now they're like ah oh, shit i can do this crypto thing and yeah. it's like so liberating and you speak to some of these kids and it's like the same ideology that draws them in over and over again and even like the original batch of kids that's, that's uh, sprouted onto like the, the early waves of like the guys that have been in, you know, foundation and building some of the stuff in 2016, 17. It's a lot of kids like, you know, high school teacher introduced them to Bitcoin or this or that. And um, yeah, it's a big part of the crypto culture. Yeah. I mean, look at Vitalik, you know, writing about Bitcoin mm -hmm. when he was in high school and creating, you know, inventing Ethereum when he was 19. Um, pretty amazing. Compared to like India and the opportunity you would have had there for college and then the United States, you said you really wanted like something that appealed to you about the U.S. What was the difference there that, that made you want to come back here to the U.S. Um, for college? So the things that stood out to me as a 13-year-old back then uh, were different than the things that stick out to me now, of course. Uh, but the, 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 and the things back then were a little bit silly, but indicative of, of things that were, that were broader. Um, you know, the, the college campuses all had computers, right? Um, which is it's like table stakes expectations. Um, and, and college campuses in India now do as well. And Indian infrastructure has improved dramatically over the years. Back then, you know, there was like, and like you know, there wasn't an emphasis on taking uh, written notes for everything, on not having the, to, to regurgitate everything you've learned. Um, and, 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 you know, the, the campus itself seemed open and broad. It seemed like people could pick and choose their curriculum and pick classes that, that appealed to them and, you know, build a program that would, really you know suit the needs other than something that was more prescriptive and those things really struck out to me when i was when i first came here now kind of reflecting back i think it's a lot of the same but you know a little bit broader on just the whole principle of freedom overall everything here is less prescriptive overall you can pick your own curriculum you can pick your own career you can pick your own timeline you can pick your own group of friends you you, you can you, you know there's a it's a very big heterogeneous set of things to to, to pick between and you know a lot of people here are kind of doing what they want rather than doing what they need to do which is an unfortunate reality of a developing country right um, everyone has to study the things that will lead to some reasonable economic outcomes for them for you know that's like a survival thing almost relative to here you know you can afford to explore things that more technologically fancy and you know kind of um things that interest you and, you know, just having people from all those different walks of life and those perspectives was, was, uh, definitely eye-opening or interesting. Absolutely. And so the campus, uh, in Champaign-Urbana, right, with the University of Illinois, that's quite a ways from Southern California and Disneyland. How did you come to, to want to go, to go to Illinois? And was that, that must have been quite a culture shock coming from Mumbai to kind of rural uh, Illinois to, to study in college. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I didn't think about it too much. And so I, I went to usnews.com and I just looked at the top engineering schools. Um, and 
UFI came up as like number three or four on the computer engineering list. And so I was like, uh, and you know, I, I was told it's cold, but I was like, how bad can it be? Um, and then I and then I showed up, and then those uh, <laughs> it was pretty cold. <laughs> in but, your shorts um, and t-shirt from Mumbai, you're like, whoa, right, right. Um, but 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 yeah, and it, you know the, the other big difference is of course Mumbai is a huge city, and like you like you pointed out, Champion is is definitely you know rural Midwest. Um, but but I actually really enjoyed that experience as well. Um, you know I think there's there's a lot of magic to having a campus town where it's all about the kids, and it's you know this it's a little microcosm of you know just this, this life there and yeah i went to a similar i mean where i went to college it was in uc santa barbara and all the students live in this little community called isla vista it's only about a square mile but there's got to be 15 to twenty thousand college kids crammed into that very small space so the whole kind of town is sort of like run by college students so yeah i, I know that feeling and it's a really nice uh it's really nice if you can find that at that time in your life because it feels like you know it was it was really good to just have all your peers around you. Um, okay, so you're you're into computer science at that point. Had you heard about Bitcoin or what? What was your like? How did you? How did those paths kind of cross for you? Yeah, so I heard of Bitcoin, um, and I'd, and I'd you know try to use Bitcoin for a few things, um, like you know just just to buy stuff on Reddit uh, a couple of times, but I didn't really got into it like super deep. And I managed to land this internship at Jump Trading, uh, which, you know, back then they'd opened this uh, research office at Jump Labs uh, at the University of Illinois. Um, and they were doing a lot of collaborations with the university on research projects for, um, one of the things was crypto trading. One of the things was they had like a mining rig in the closet. They were working with, the VR professors that helped build the Oculus to like abstract trading screens and they were doing networking and machine learning stuff. And it was just a lab to build cool stuff, collaborate with the university. And I managed to land an internship at Jump. I ended up working at the Jump Labs office for um, during the semester. And that's in like the very early, early innings of when Jump was kicking off its crypto efforts overall. Um, and you know it was, it was an awesome environment. You know, you're spinning chairs, young people, experienced people, just learning <laughs> yeah. about crypto, and that's how I really got into it. And did you know, like being at Champagne, you know, the, that campus? I think that's where um, Bill Garinas and um, Paul DeSoma went to. They were that was their alma mater. Did were you aware of that at the time, or was Jump like well known at that campus, or what? What was that like? Jump's always been like quiet, you know, relatively prior to crypto was very quiet, a little secretive, kind of, you know, under the radar. Um, and yeah, oh, yeah, I know about that. Folks I'll tell you about that. Engineering in school, no, <laughs> sorry. Oh, yeah. I, so I, you should ask around at Jump about this, but I wrote the first profile of Jump Trading for Bloomberg Markets Magazine, and they just really did not like it because um, they, they were very secretive. You know, they did not want to be known in the public, but we had been covering all these things in, on Wall Street and Chicago trading firms. And, you know, we just, you know, we had to write about Jump. So, of course, Paul and Bill didn't want to talk to us and nobody talked to us, but we still, you know, wrote the story. I think that's, I uh, got Krista Felger her job there because I think she was hired pretty much right after that uh, to be their PR person. And she's still there to this day. So, yeah, I'm sorry I interrupted you, though. You, you were just like Jump was, were they well known at the campus, though? As like, because I obviously... It sounds like they were like really going there to looking for talented kids like you. Yeah, yeah. The, they they were well known within like a small niche commu community of the computer engineers in 
in junior and senior year and sophomore year who were looking for internships because it was like the best internship you could get. Um, and so they were known for that reason, just for, you know, kids that really wanted to do like low latency C++ stuff. Um, but they still managed to keep a low profile. You know, they, they weren't at all the career fairs. They weren't um, advertising a bunch of places. It was like a, their, their recruiting was very like, you know, network based. They would try to go to the professors, find the best kids through them. It was, uh, was, was more, they tried to go more invitation versus advertising. Is that how you got introduced to them? It wasn't a job fair. It was through another peer uh, who worked at Jump, who I ended up knowing through a few degrees of connection and who then ended up referring me uh, for, the, for, for an interview, um, which is then how I ended up at Jump. Yeah. Cool. All right. And so you're, you've got an internship, but you're still going to college. And your internship was in crypto, correct? Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, was building very early crypto trading infrastructure in like a sandbox environment. Um, it was a trading project for interns designed so that interns could still work on building trading infrastructure without messing up all of the other gem trading stuff or needing access to all, that, all those things. And so we could just yeah, go yeah, off and yeah. do our own thing and you know, work under this small encapsulated bubble. And what did you think at that time? Like, did, uh, you said you had a little bit of experience with Bitcoin, but now that you're kind of in the trenches and, and Jump has, you know, probably got its hands in, in all sorts of different projects and coins. Did that really open your eyes up to it? Or was there a certain um, coin or a protocol that really sort of like, you know, made you see the potential um, of what was, everybody was talking about here? Yeah, you know, I think it was a large function of just sitting in it. Because the first time you hear kind of some of the ideas of Bitcoin, or you read the paper, um, you know, at least to me, kind of just didn't like instantly jump out. You know, like, you know, kind of what this means. Um, and, you know, then, then you kind of like sit and contemplate some of like the accomplishments that they've made. And, you know, they're interesting from this computer science perspective, but then like marinating the ideas a little bit more, it's like, okay, you, 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 can, you, you can build this globally distributed ledger that has these update rules that are, that, you know, kind of pre-specified that allow, that allow people to maintain records of things without any central intermediary or trust authority maintaining them. And then you go to Ethereum and then, okay, now you can use this ledger for arbitrary computation. And okay, now you can, you know, build this entire layer of coordination for society on top of kind of unintermediated rails. And then those concepts start to feel really powerful. And I think the, it was just like the sitting in it that made me excited. I think then after you graduated, you got hired at Jump, is that correct? Yeah. Came back to Chicago. By the time I joined, I think we were already at the yeah the the 2017 crypto bull market had just ended. So my 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 internship for eight months or ten months was at was before the 2017 bull run as it just began to kind of run up. Yeah. And by the time I joined, one year later after having finished the college the school year, it was the crash. Yeah. It was the crash. Crypto yeah. winter had set in. Mm -hmm. But you know the old adage is you know things are built in a winter, right? Uh, we're in that phase right now. So when you uh, came back to Jump as an employee, what were you working on? Yeah, I was, work I was working on a, in a couple of different things. I was working on like the trading platform infrastructure, which is helping build the systems that Jump uses to interact with the markets. So the exchange connectivity with the exchanges, the strategies that they use to trade. And then the thing that I really wanted to work on, which is, you know, the things that I was, that I eventually worked on a few months in was on the quant research side of it, where you're trying to build 
the predictive models that inform the trading decisions. And so I was working across both those things and helping building infrastructure for the trading platform and for the, the quant platform. What were you guys thinking at the time? Because we've spoken about how, you know, Jump is kind of want long, like has been private um, about its business for a long time. But I, I think on the crypto side, I think there was always an idea that you guys would want to go public with it. But was there some sort of thinking among the executives there that like we need to get to a certain milestone or, or some sort of phase in crypto before we sort of like go public? Or was there any kind of thinking like that behind the scenes about when, you know, you guys wanted to be more um, out in the open about what you guys were doing? Yeah, so, so the decision to go public came a few years later, and it was largely informed by the fact that if we're building stuff that involves rallying communities around the work we're doing or sharing research with platforms that you know we're, we're working on, um, that we needed to have a consolidated voice to um, you know to speak on. To um, prior to that, you know there wasn't any kind of business benefit from being outspoken. You know, as a prop trading firm, even in the crypto space there was no business benefit to advertising what Jump was doing. Um, and, you know, being quiet and getting work done was the most efficient way to, to work. When that changed, we decided to kind of move on. And so it was a very, it was a, just strongly informed by what, what the business model needed at that time. Yeah. Okay. And then just for listeners, how old were you when you got hired by Jump? Uh... So I started my, 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 my internship 2017, January. Um, and so I was 20 then maybe. And when I came back full time, I was maybe 22 already. Okay. So you come back full time as a 22 year old, but then by the time you're 25, you're president of Jump Crypto, uh, correct? Uh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. How did you have such a, a meteoric rise there? What was it? Was it just a perfect fit for you, or what? How how would you describe that? Yeah, it, it was certainly a great fit, Matt. You know, in, in those in those three in, in those in the, in the three years, kind of or four years prior to that appointment, um, I had the opportunity to wear a lot of different hats, and so I started working on the trading infrastructure project. Then I was working on some of the predictive modeling. Um, as time kind of passed, I saw a lot of the business development opportunities for Jump to use its liquidity to do more business in the crypto space. And so I, I shifted my, my focus to working on those opportunities. And a lot of those opportunities really began to pay off. And I, began, and I, and I started to don that hat more and more. And as someone that had, you know, won all, had played all those different roles, given the, the role that we expected to play as Jump Crypto, you know, in playing in this triangle across research and development, trading, and partnerships, I was sitting in a unique role as, as having, you know, viewpoint into all of those and a track record of some, you know, success over the few years. And Jump is, you know, incredibly supportive place. You know, I have, I have tons of folks around me that are very talented, very experienced. And over time, I got to learn from all the key executives across all the functions. And I'm definitely very fortunate, you know, to also be in a market that had that meteoric rise to let me then have the similar rise in my career. But so in the last couple of years, you guys have been, you know, spearheading a lot of different ventures. Um, one is, I think it's, is it Pyth or Pith? Yeah, I, I say Pith. Uh, some folks say Pyth. Pith. Okay. Yeah. So, so Pith is a, it's a pricing service, right? For um, assets that are on the Solana blockchain. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. So it, it, it's an Oracle product. You know, an Oracle is, is effectively a pricing service that enables 
prices to be read by applications that are built on blockchains. And it sort of aggregates pricing sources from a lot of first-party data providers like trading firms, like exchanges, and it enables them to share this data with applications building on the blockchain. So it started with the Solana blockchain, but now it's available on north of six blockchains, I want to say. And it powers uh, over 100 applications as of a few weeks ago. Okay, cool. And I believe it was last year, it was earlier this year that you guys said that you were going to help Solana kind of become more decentralized. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that and how that's going? Yeah, yeah, uh, that, that, that's that's a really exciting initiative. It's it's, it's one that we call Fire Dancer internally, and, and uh, I think that's also the brand that's now that is now being marketed under. Um, so Fire Dancer is a fully independent second validator client implementation for Solana. So what that means is, you know, the Solana blockchain as a protocol is meant to update based on certain rules, uh, and then the Solana team has written a piece of software that. Everyone, you know, all the validators of the Solana blockchain run to that, that then validate those rules and participate in the consensus on the blockchain. Every crypto project, you know, really is, is really pushing very hard on decentralization on a lot of different vectors. A lot of the more commonly discussed ones are things like how many validators run the network? You know, how many people would it take to collude to then, you know, to compromise the network? It's called the Nakamoto coefficient often in the in, 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 in conversation. Um, but there are many other dimensions of decentralization, right? For example, um, if Solana Labs is the writer of the Solana client, decides to change some change some code in in their in the validator client, and folks were just blindly willing to just trust that implementation and download it and run it, which is what a lot of people participating in blockchain networks do. Theoretically, if somebody were able to compromise that client or compromise access to that the that that piece of software it would take down the entire network right just by one single node failing which is one development entity so the fire dancer effort is an effort to have another implementation of this piece of software which is very very complicated and involved you know it's uh, solana is trying to build one of the most complicated pieces of high performance computing infrastructure in a decentralized setting that the world's ever seen um and or in a distributed setting overall and so in being able to rewrite this piece of software independently, it adds a lot of decentralization in the network in that now you have to compromise both implementations if you are uh, to be able to cause safety failures or um, you know, cause vulnerabilities in the network overall. Yeah, so is it like in Ethereum where obviously there are seven different clients that are running the Ethereum blockchain and they're all written in different uh, code languages? And then you could see like, you know, that's a that's a, pretty good way to build a blockchain because like you're saying, it, it's not a single point of failure. So like, I think there was a Shanghai um, uh, hacks on Ethereum back a couple of years ago that took down a couple of clients, but they didn't get all of them. So the, the network never went down. Is that sort of what we're talking about here with the Solana and the Fire Dancer project? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right, man. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the, the Ethereum network is basically the only other network that has more than one client implementation. So Solana would be the second. And of course, Bitcoin does too, but that's uh, yeah, a different class of blockchains. Why did you guys decide to get involved here? Was it something that was Solana going around to folks and saying, hey, can you like, uh, you know, kind of like a request for quotes or kind of, or you know what I mean? Um, were they shopping around like and trying to pick some a partner to build this or did you go to them or like how, how did that all how did it all come about 
Yeah, it was it was the confluence of a lot of lot of really great factors, and so you know, as I was mentioning earlier, I think, you know, Solana is a really complicated, high performance distributed computing system, and so it has very very challenging problems in networking, and uh, in, in, in the runtime and consensus. Um, Jump is a firm that spent the last decade or so building high performance systems for the purpose of trading. You know, really optimizing networks, really optimizing hardware, making sure that information is distributed around the world in a highly reliable, fast, robust fashion. And you know that 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 kind of made us very uniquely capable of taking this challenge on because it's a very very complicated technical undertaking. You know we've been involved in the Solana ecosystem for a few years now, um, and so we had a you know very good relationship with the community as a whole. The network had reached a stage of maturity where it could warrant an implementation of this nature, where it could benefit from someone taking a complete re- rewrite of. Uh, of this code base, you know, potentially actually cleanly specifying the protocol, adding performance optimizations, and building something that would you know push push the protocol as a whole forward. Um, and so, you know, our relation existing relationship with Solana, our you know unique kind of it's a unique ability to actually take this problem on, um, and the clear need for it in that at that point in time, uh, kind of all came together for us to you know be able to make a decision to to make that happen. Yeah, that's cool. So we joked at the beginning about the, those three little letters that we don't want to say, but I, I'm going to have to break that. And as you know, in the wake of FTX going down, Solana got dragged down with it. Uh, the price fell quite a bit. How were you guys viewing that as it was happening? And, and where do you think things stand now? Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, I wanted to start with, you know, the, the, the collapse is truly stunning. One of the most incredible things we've, we've, we've seen. Um, in the space, but even you know, even in the financial industry, kind of broadly for for, for a while, you know, since maybe Madoff and Enron and a few other things. So, the, yeah. the 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 impacts of it, I think, are being digested by the industry as a whole. Everyone's felt it. Solana, like you pointed out, has has borne a good deal of the brunt of it. You know, Sam was a big champion of the Solana blockchain. They had a sizable holding of it. You know, as has been publicized. There's no doubting that it actually has impacted you know the network. You know, in in Kind of public trust and financially in the overhang of the liquidity that exists, but you know that being said, the Solana community truly is you know vast, decentralized, and you know has a number of things going on for it outside of outside of Sam and FTX. I had a, I had a Twitter thread out yes you know a couple couple of weeks ago that outlined you know the the myriad efforts that are being conducted within the Solana ecosystem. You know, there's the Firedancer client that we're working on. There's a phone that the Solana team is working on. There's the NFT ecosystem. There's the throughput. There's the DeFi. Uh, there's all the network effects that they've accrued by virtue of their existence and their battle hardness over the last few years. And um, all of that's just still true. One of the major stakeholders in the network is out, but the there's, there's a million other incredible properties about it that still continue to exist and be and be really really strong. And so you know this is in, in our view an opportunity uh, for the Solana ecosystem to kind of rebuild itself. Outside of the shadow of, of one specific individual or or entity, I think the community has responded really well. Uh, you know, obviously there's a there's a price impact, but you know we've seen we've seen how prices can move in crypto pretty dramatically over very short periods of time. So, um, yeah, we, yeah, you know, overall we still remain pretty optimistic and excited about the project. It's it's maybe one of the only novel architectures in the space that has the the ability to kind of build something that works at at the scale that that we think you know financial infrastructure potentially needs to. And when do you think FireDancer might be implemented, or how far along are you in in the work? Yeah. So the awesome thing about FireDancer is it's being built completely in the open. 
Um, and so anyone can sign into the GitHub and see like the flurry of commits that come in on a very consistent weekly basis. You know, the project is, is, is very new and fresh. And so, you know, right now a lot of work is being done on completing some early milestones in the networking component. Uh, and the idea is to build it modularly. And so there's going to be, you know, a networking chunk that goes in, come, that, that, that gets built out. And then that gets inserted as a library in the existing client that then gets circulated through the Solana ecosystem. And then we'll work on the next piece. There's a lot of progress, uh, you know, promising timelines on any engineering deliverable is a, is a fool's errand, especially with something so complex and so early. But, you know, we feel good that we'll probably have something to show and something. We already did some demos early on at, 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 uh, at Solana Breakpoint this November. But, you know, in having some code potentially starting to get in test nets in production in like 12-ish months, you know, that, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a reasonable timeline. Cool. Another big project you guys have really been backing is um, Wormhole, uh, which is, is a bridge um, between... You know, so you can move assets from one blockchain to another. I just read it's is it now linking sixteen different blockchains? Is that the right number? Yeah, we're up to, to uh, I think almost up to twenty two now, um, and so it's a very fast growing network. Oh wow! Okay, it's moving fast. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why why this is important? And um, and then there have been some issues, you know, some security stuff that that's happened. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. But first of all, like, what's the problem that Wormhole solves? Yeah. Through the last few years, you know, we've seen the rise of a lot of different blockchain networks. You know, for all the people observing, there's a lot of new tokens. There's Sol, there's Near, there's Avalanche, there's Ethereum, there's, there's BNB, Polygon. Um, and mm -hmm. all of these blockchains have existed as kind of their own silos, um, their own kind of world gardens of uh, computer environments that have had activity kind of happening inside of them, but there's no way to conduct commerce amongst them. Um, and so there's a lot of interesting kind of activity that's going on within each of these chains, but uh, the the assets and the information and the state that's being created hasn't been able to be transmitted across across the borders. So Wormhole is an interoperability solution that aims to connect these blockchains and provide uh, interfaces to let blockchain apps be built across across chains and for assets to move across chains, NFTs to move across chains, you know, just, just enable enable the movement of information and state across across these borders. As we said kind of earlier in this conversation, it's up to about 22 networks. It's one of the most in adopted interoperability protocols in the space right now. It did have the security incident and you know definitely happy to speak to it. Uh, you know, there was a there's a breach in one of the Solana contracts that comprise of the Wumhole network. Um, in February, um, you know, it was uh, to the tune of about $320 million of Ethereum. At Jump, we made the decision to fill that hole. Um, you know, the, the hole was, the, the decision was made very quickly. The hole was patched and the bridge was made, was, 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 was restarted live in under 24 hours. Mm -hmm. the, the protocol has had, you know, pre pretty significant adoption since. Security in smart contracts is hard. It's, it's like rocket ship engineering. You know, you, you don't, you don't yeah. get an opportunity to, to patch a bug. You don't get an opportunity to, to, get, to get take two once the, once the breach is in, it's in, you know, code, code is unfortunately, you know, kind of non-negotiable. And so, you know, the... Yeah, with, yeah I was just going to say, it's interesting um, because at the protocol level, most blockchains are quite secure, but when you start talking about bridges um, or something like Formhole, then you can kind of introduce a weak link there. And we've seen it like there was the Ronin bridge, you know, the wormhole event, there's been others. Um, in, as, 
layman terms as possible, what, what is it about a bridge that makes it sort of a weaker link or, or um, an attractive target for hackers? So bridges have definitely become big honeypots just by virtue of you know, the assets that, that they've been used to transmit. But, but, but just one misconception that I'd like to kind of clear up overall is uh, that, you know, this, that similar bugs don't exist at the protocol level. So if you look at the Solana blockchain, even if you look at Ethereum, you look at Polygon, you look at Near, uh, even Optimism recently, uh, they've had vulnerabilities in how in, in in their code base, you know, in the code base that implements the protocol itself. And so, you know, there's there's a few different levels of security. There is you know, the soundness of the protocol itself. You know, is the trust model that this protocol espouses safe? Um, and for a lot of lot of products and blockchains, you can say yes. And then it's like, okay, is the implementation of this protocol safe? Um, and over the last five years in crypto, we've actually found you know, no. Um, and, you know, tons and tons of layer one blockchains have had very serious security vulnerabilities that have been patched, um, you know, quietly, efficiently, but in the dark. Um, and thankfully, none of them have been exploited too terribly to, to have exploits that have compromised the entire layer one blockchain to start. You know, Optimism had one that was recently reported that was patched. It wasn't exploited for, for too much coin. But much like any other complicated protocol, like a layer one blockchain or another complicated application, bridge contracts can be complicated. Um, and additionally, they're very attractive targets because the contracts that are built on top of these interoperability networks tend to hold and contain. Yeah, because um, if yeah. I just jump in, like what you're doing is maybe you're, you want to move ETH over to Solana from the Ethereum blockchain. So you you, you park your ETH in the, in the bridge contract and then you get... Um, I don't know what what's ETH called on Solana, but it's, it's it's a version of it, right? And then you can use that, but your the ETH that you're using on Solana is is backed by the ETH that you've kind of um, you know put as collateral in your in the bridge contract, right? So that's where you're talking about like a honeypot. So these contracts, these bridge contracts, are going to tend to to hold a whole bunch of crypto, and that makes them very attractive for 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 thieves, basically. Yep, yep, uh, that, that that's exactly right, Matt. Now you're. The, the one thing that, you know, I, I, and, and there has been a lot of bridge hacks recently, which is why I think they've entered a lot of the, the popular discussion. Um, you know, the class of vulnerabilities that have been exploited outside of the Ronin Bridge example are very similar to exploits that could exist on Uniswap, for example. You know, Uniswap contracts custody a lot of funds. Like, you know, when there's billions and billions of yeah. what is called total value locked in the, in the ecosystem. And that's a honeypot too. You know, so are lending protocols, so are a bunch of others. Um, and over the last many, many years, all these protocols are like not talking about them individually, but as a class of protocols have been exploited pretty aggressively. Um, and, you know, they yeah. didn't because of their because of the development in the stage in crypto, they thankfully weren't as much money. Uh, but they've been they've all been exploited very aggressively over years and years. Um, and as a result of that, there's been an emergence of a lot of battle hardened code, battle hardened patterns that now make it because thankfully feel like those products are more secure, right? That those, those smart contracts are more secure than others. Um, bridges are new. Bridges are complicated because they interact with multiple different blockchains uh, working in different contexts. And that paired with the fact that, you know, at the height of the crypto bull market, the numbers that we're talking about are pretty big here, make them very attractive honeypots that have eventually been exploited by, by, by nefarious actors. Yeah, it, it's really interesting. Um... When you were talking about originally, like you know, the need for for wormhole and for other bridges is because all these different blockchains have 
sort of grown up and become silos. And one of the things that, that crypto and sort of decentralized um, applications wanted to, to change was sort of the siloed nature of the way that traditional finance works, you know, or traditional corporate um, governance works, where it's a very siloed thing. You know, you've got centralized actors. So it's just, I just find it a little ironic. I hadn't thought about it like that, where, um, you know, with all these different chains, it's sort of like it's recreating that model a little bit. But um, I think obviously it's, you know, that's not the goal here, but it's just sort of like maybe it's a human sort of um, <laughs> uh, predilection to, to do something like that. But I wanted to just get your, your thoughts. You know, there's a lot going on in crypto right now. Um, a lot of big firms, uh, you know, have gone down. How's Jump doing? How are you guys? And, and are, uh, how do you see the, the bigger picture uh, right now as, as a firm that's been there, you know, uh, almost as long as anybody? Yeah. Um, you know, that, thankfully, man, we're doing fine. Um, you know, the, we, I think, you know, it's publicly well known that, you know, Jump had deposits in FTX at the time that this, this event occurred. We have a very seasoned and mature team. You know, we have lots of we have lots of checks and balances. Checks and balances can slow you down. And but you know, recently I uh, find myself thanking our controls and legal and risk and finance team uh, for you know kind of having you know for for playing the role that they do. And you know, our, our risk is, our risk and exchange exposure has always been you know managed according to a lot of lot of policies that we've had that we've built over the years. And that leaves us you know in a in a position where we're very well capitalized in an industry that's, you know, dry of liquidity, dry of capital, and potentially heading into a rough patch again, right? This kind of feels like back in 2018 and 2019, where there wasn't much going on, you know, the, there really isn't much sentiment, much excitement. Um, but but it's where a lot of the, you know, kind of a lot of the building was done. And so, you know, we're, uh, yeah. you know, the effort that we've built here is is always been to, you know, be able to realize value in kind of very long time skills, because that's, Kind of what the ethos of this this firm largely has been prior to prior to prior to even me being here, um, and so you know we we feel very optimistic, still very committed to crypto. Um, you know we think it's going to be a cold winter for for a good bit, but that well capitalized actors are going to come out pretty strong on the other end. Yeah, and I've I've um, been talking to people. We're doing a year end um, sort of look back uh, at 2022. So I've been talking to a lot of people and asking them like, what was the best and the worst thing and most surprising thing that happened. And a lot of people um, are talking about, you know, brought up, you know, yeah, everything kind of sucks. And there's a lot of mistrust right now. But then you've got Goldman Sachs coming out and saying that they want to buy web three companies because they think now the valuations are fair. And you've got Starbucks coming out on Polygon, you know, testing its rewards program that's blockchain based and you've got reddit who's you know issuing digital wallets on polygon you've got nike doing nfts so it, you know these are big kind of rather conservative companies um who obviously see that the technology is is there obviously a lot of people lost money in a lot of different things going back to you know terra and luna that kind of started the whole last six or eight months of, of you know what, what can only be called a shit show but you know the underlying tech is there, and I think that the, that that's kind of been a silver lining that I've taken away from some of these conversations I've had with people. That rather than running away, big companies and corporations and brands seem to be embracing it. Actually, definitely agree with with, with everything you're saying, Matt. You know this this uh, this bear feels different than the last one. Um, you know I think it's easy to it's easy to identify what the what the worst has been. I'll try to pick two themes of silver linings, um, and you know kind of things that we're particularly excited about overall. 
the whole FTX situation in and of itself, uh, you know, has accelerated the absolute evisceration of trust in kind of we've had as society and, and as a crypto industry overall. Um, you know, the, the, the like decentralization now actually makes your BOTS better. It's a dimension in the product that's actually useful, that people are actually looking for, where people are willing to pay for exporting trust. Um, and as, you know, globalization dissolves, as social trust, you know, as, as trust in the social contract continues to erode, um, that, you know, that bubbles up into value for what this industry has been building for for an extended period of time. Um, it's not good societally, um, without a doubt, but I think it's uh, it's validated a lot of what the, the validated a lot of the principles that this industry was was predicated on and built on. And the other one is, you know, does people building stuff in this industry have had to solve too many problems to build anything? Um, you know, there's there's a, there's a there's a there's a problem of having to invent too much stuff which takes away the ability to actually iterate on product market feedback um, and like, you know, this product market fit overall. And with the majority of infrastructure, with the majority of companies building tooling, experiences, analytics, we're still a ways away. Uh, it, you know, it still feels raw, but it feels like it's just getting better all the time. And so that's, uh, that's the silver lining that I'll take away from the year. Yeah. All right. I love ending on silver linings. Let's, let's do it there. Um, and I should have said this right at the top, but congratulations on being uh, one of Coindesk's most influential uh, people in crypto for 2022. I'm sure there's got to be some 30 under 30 lists that you're going to be hitting here. You've got, what, four more years for that? <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, I've got some time. Kanav, thank you so much. I uh, really appreciated uh, talking to you and uh, learned a lot. And uh, just really uh, thank you for uh, sharing details about you know your background and where you came from. Um, why don't you tell folks where to find you and and how to find Jump uh, Crypto? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. You can find me on Twitter at uh, at Kanav Career. Um, you can find Jump at Jump underscore on Twitter. Um, and yeah, thanks a lot for having me on. Thank you. Well, hey, that's it for another episode of Decent People. Thanks so much for joining us. Make sure to hit that subscribe button. Check us out on the web at decentral.io. We're on Twitter at Decentral Media. Our shows are produced by Matt Solon. The music is courtesy of Brian Duncan and Kareem Imes. Thanks so much. Take care.